Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, I say this every day that I'm here. It's my favorite time of the day when I get to host The Rush because it is our smart speaker's time. Matt Gurney, co-founder and editor of The Line, which is an online magazine, and he's also a columnist for TV Ontario. Sunil Johal, who is a professor in public policy and society at the University of Toronto. And Jamie Ellerton, founding partner at Canaptis and longtime political strategist. Welcome to The Rush, as always, for Smart Speakers. Let's get going here. News broke late yesterday that psychologist, professor, and author Dr. Jordan Peterson had been turned down by a second court when he asked to overturn the requirement by the College of Psychologists of Ontario that he take social meeting media training. Matt Gurney, I'm going to start with you. What's your thought on this? I'm going to have to violate my usual don't talk about Jordan Peterson rule. Uh, there's something in my, there's something in my personality that the more attention someone gets and the more acclaim they get and the more notoriety they get, the less interested I become. Unless something is actually like a genuine outstanding news story, and God knows we've seen enough of those the last few years, I, I don't care. And this is an example for me where I don't care. Personally, I think Peterson has a point. I like To the extent I've looked into it at all, I think he does have a point. But also, if you choose choose to maintain your licensing standard in a regulated profession that is governed by a college, you are subject to the whims, stupid or otherwise, of that college. Like, I just, we got people dying in hospitals for lack of care. We have two wars. I I don't know how much I'm supposed to care about Jordan Peterson not wanting to do something. Well, and even if you're in his domain, I mean, we have such a massive backlog of mental health issues that we we actually need people to practice. So, Neil, what's your take on it? Do you agree with with Matt? Uh, Can I just say ditto to Matt and pass it over to Jamie? Because I also have a prohibition against talking about uh jordan peterson i, I mean didn't I, know this was a I, thing I, <laughs> no i think i think it's a i think it's a widespread belief but yeah i, I totally agree with matt i mean if, if you're going to put yourself out there and say that you're a clinical psychologist and then demean former clients as he's alleged to have done i mean i think you, you can't be surprised when you get uh your, your wrist slapped for that i mean i think the social media training uh, as the as the punishment maybe is a bit kind of funny and ironic given how prolific he is on social uh, media. Maybe they should have just looked at something else, a fine or some kind of suspension of his license. But I think uh, he probably gets too much attention. I don't want to give him too much more. Jamie Ellerton, do you care? Yeah, I don't know if uh, we live in a society and we have to respect the rule of law and how society functions is one of the 12 rules for life. But uh, <laughs> the we live in a society and we have self-regulating bodies that are given legislative authority to regulate the professions, which I think is better than having a bunch of bureaucrats who aren't actually experts writing all the rules. Uh, and when that college of physicians, or in this case, the college of psychologists say you're violating professional standards, uh, then you have to abide by the college and, and go along with it. If you want to make a point of principle, and use, uh, frankly, his position of privilege because he's so wildly popular, clearly floating in money with all the books he's sold, uh, and what he's done effectively since leaving being just a simple prop at the U of T uh, to make a broader political point, great. But like then you need to work within the College of Psychologists to change whatever the rules and standards you are, as opposed to just thumb your nose at it all and say you're better than it all. That's not how society functions. 
I'll just uh, say uh, for a bit of balance here that there, uh, Peterson wrote in probably on social media, there are no other legal avenues open to me now. It's capitulate to the petty bureaucrats or lose my professional license. So we had a bit of a re-announcement, although there were some new details today uh, from the Ontario Minister of Health that they are going to be continuing the uh, private clinic setups, allowing private clinics, whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit, to do a number of procedures, surgeries in this province, all OHIP-funded, things like MRIs, CTs, GI endoscopies, orthopedic surgery. Um, The minister said we're proceeding. She also took an opportunity to say, which I think was the the new part of the announcement, that Accreditation Canada will be the inspecting body uh, for quality and safety. Any news in this for you, Matt Gurney? I mean, yeah, I mean, the news is obviously the announcement itself, Deb, and I know that sounds like a statement of the obvious, but I mean that very sincerely. We've known that this was coming for a while. There have been in previous announcements. Uh, anyone watching the state of the system knew this was coming. So the news is obviously that we have finally arrived at the place we all knew we would eventually get to. In terms of an actual response to it, no, I mean, it is generally in line with what we had expected here. And I think the only point I kind of want to lead with here is because I've been looking at some of the reaction to this immediately. I don't think Ontarians have a good civic literacy about how the healthcare system works, right? Because people get freaked out at the idea of, oh, the creeping privatization of the healthcare system. And you know what? Yeah, you can be freaked out by that. But to me, this tells us nothing about that because this is simply expanding something that already exists. A considerable portion of healthcare delivery in Ontario, even if it's publicly funded, is privately delivered. Let's try it. And if it doesn't work, we can talk about that. But I mean, the entire system is collapsing around our ears right now. I just I'm not interested in just rehashing why we need to never change anything and just keep doing what we're doing in the hopes it'll somehow work out better. Yeah, and there's 900 of these already today operating throughout the province. Uh, Sunil, I usually go on a rant, which is sort of a, a hybrid of what Matt just shared, which is we need to be precise in our language, too, because there is a difference between calling any private sector involvement in healthcare privatization. There's also, you know, a difference between, for some people, private clinics that are for profit because a lot of people equate privatization and profit, and not-for-profit private clinics. Having said all that, which is just part of my rant, uh, take this anywhere you want to go, Sunil. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think the big issue here, as you say, like, and, and as Matt alluded to, like this isn't anything new in it. On its face, it's not necessarily a problem. The issue comes when you kind of start scratching beneath the surface. Like, what does this mean at, at a macro scale for the public System. If we start seeing doctors and other staff uh, creamed off the top and going to these private uh, clinics, it does lead to even further challenges in terms of staffing the public system. And they're not just laser focused necessarily on these three or four types of procedures. So could people who are awaiting other procedures then be waiting even longer um, as a as a result, I mean, we don't magically have kind of tens of thousands of uh, healthcare professionals waiting in the wings to go and do this work. Like, there's a competition for these staff. A lot of them have left the profession entirely or gone uh, gone down south due to the pandemic and the stresses of the pandemic. So, I think we really need to think about a, a human healthcare uh, capital approach to to this type of issue. How do we make sure that we're making uh, facilities, whether private or uh, public 
attractive and that we can meet the demands that we're going to see in the healthcare system because our population is aging. We're only going to see more demands. And we can see that our system in, in a whole range of areas is really struggling to keep up even, even now, let alone 5, 10, 15 years down the road. Jamie Ellerton, my question on this usually uh, is, so are you happy with the healthcare system status quo today? And if you're thrilled, then let's end the conversation. If you think it's really quite broken, <laughs> you know, then then let's talk. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think the thing that probably jumped out to me the most today was that they are giving the kind of vetting for and standards of holding inspections to an organization called Accreditation Canada, uh, which I actually don't know anything about, and so I'm going to have to read up more on it. And so I don't know if that's going to be like the equivalent for manufacturing. You often hear like an organization's ISO 9001 uh, to show they're certified to produce quality products. Uh, is Accreditation Canada a going to be a, a reliable, uh, essentially, police of standards within uh, these private clinics that are operating? Or is this something that's going to be a ticking time bomb for uh, needing to have actual government officials enforcing standards like we have safety food inspection agencies? So that's probably the one thing for me. But broadly speaking, yeah, I think we need to bring more healthcare supply to the equation. Uh, and if private capital wants to come in and get paid by public dollars to expand the public healthcare system, I think that's a great thing. And I think uh, the immigration minister should continue to ramp up the recruiting of healthcare professionals and expediting the uh, credentialing process for them to be able to practice within the system. Yeah, Jamie, you've keyed on on what I think is one of the, the newsworthy points, and that is that there was an assumption that the colleges that currently exist would be the governing bodies and, and the uh, sort of inspecting bodies, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, but it is accreditation. Canada, I'm with you. I don't know a huge amount about it. Um, looked into it slightly, and it seems that a uh, quality and safety perspective, which you want first and foremost in healthcare, seems to be up their alley, and that this is perhaps a good decision. But we will continue to look at that. Smart speakers: Mark, Matt Gurney, Sunil Johal, and Jamie Ellerton. When we come back, have you ever heard of cash for keys in the world of rentals? We're going to discuss. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is the Rush on News Talk 1010. Welcome back. It's Deb Hutton. You're listening to The Rush, and it is that time of day where we invite smart speakers to join us to talk about their perspectives on some of the big topics we've been discussing with you, our listeners, throughout the afternoon. Joining me this afternoon, Matt Gurney, co-founder and editor of The Line, which is an online magazine, and also he's a columnist for TV Ontario, Sunil Johal, who is the professor in public policy and society at the University of Toronto, and Jamie Ellerton, founding partner at Canaptic and longtime political strategist. So there's a story that producer Ben brought to me this morning, and I could not believe this concept, this practice is legal. It is called cash for keys, where a tenant who's facing eviction has been asked to leave for whatever number of reasons, uh, true evictions, you know, lack of payment of rent or what have you, um, people moving back into a place, uh, people wanting to renovate, a number of reasons for a tenant being asked to leave. They attempt to get money from the landlord in order to leave peacefully and at an agreed upon time. Now, 
I tend to call it extortion, but apparently it is a legal practice. The issue is that the practice, uh, the the people who are are undertaking this practice, the, the tenants who are undertaking it, and the requests that they're making for money in the tens of thousands of dollars say they're doing so because the landlord and tenant board, where these disputes are usually settled, those of evictions, is so backlogged that tenants know they really have some landlords uh, over a barrel if they need the unit back for themselves, their family, if they want to get on with renovating and selling, whatever the issue is. Should this be legal, Matt Gurney? Extortion should never be legal. And, you know, landlords and tenants sign contracts and the, the contract should be legally binding. Um I, I I don't typically go out of my way to defend landlords, right? Because it's kind of like going out of your way to defend used car salesmen or Jordan Peterson. Like it doesn't go well for you. It never it never ends well. But I will say that one of the things I have noticed in recent years, particularly as the, as the real estate market has heated up. People I know who do rent out a basement or uh, an investment property. I know a guy, kind of a sad situation, but when his when his dad passed away, he and his sister decided to keep the house and rent it. And you know they renovated it. They turned it into like multiple units, and it's a nightmare. And I I understand that normally the power dynamic favors the landlord and not the tenant because we all hear these terrible stories of exploitive or abusive landlords, but there really is a degree of this going back the other way. And in a housing crisis, we cannot afford to have a situation where there are people out there who may own rental properties that they are refusing to put on the market because the sinews of the bureaucracy, the the uh, the control boards, Deb, that you've mentioned, are not effectively able to enforce contractual law. It's insane. It's counterproductive. And it's oh so Canadian. I'm really with Matt on this one. Sunil, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a bit of a counterpoint here. I mean, you do have a lot of landlords who will claim that they want to move back into a unit for their own use. And then what they're actually doing is wanting to put the unit back on the market at a much higher rent that's not capped by rent control because they have a new tenant um, now. And I think that's the, that happens a lot. And it, I mean, I think ultimately at the end of the day, to kind of Matt's point, we need an adjudication process that's fair for both sides because there are legitimate claims that a tenant or a landlord could have in this kind of situation that need to, need to be dealt with expeditiously. It can't take a year or a year and a half for this to happen because then uh, the landlord is over a barrel and that's not fair for, for them. And we also want tenants to have certainty around what their living situation is. So, I mean, I think whatever the government's done to boost uh, the number of adjudicators and staff at the landlord-tenant board probably isn't enough and it needs it needs to be more. They need to kind of think of ways they can cut the red tape and get to decisions much more quickly. Jamie Ellerton, did you know cash for keys was a thing? I didn't know it had a name, but I've heard of this dynamic going on. And I think fundamentally, this is a a, a symptom that government is broken. Uh, when it takes years for the landlord tribunal uh, and housing tribunal to hear a case, you are going to see people resort to extraordinary means to try and take matters into their own hands. Uh, and I do think there obviously needs to be 
uh, balance between the interests of landlords and the interests of tenants. Uh, but often you hear horror stories going both ways. And frankly, both sides end up talking past each other to just kind of feel smug and right in their position while they complain with others around them. Uh, and so I think this fundamentally goes the provincial government needs to fund the landlord and a tenants tribunal so that it actually maintains a service standard and has more enforcement so that you actually can remove people quickly and you don't see this situation stepping up. And the same goes for tenants who are wrongfully evicted for like bogus rent evictions, family members moving in only to see it back on the market three months later at $500 more rent. Uh, there, we Again, this goes back to society. We live in society, the rule of law, where we have standards. And if the government apparatus to enforce those standards is broken, uh, I'm not surprised to see people are taking it into their own hands to uh, find remedies that work for them. Topic I haven't uh, got a chance to discuss yet today, and that is that the House of Commons Ethics Committee has been meeting and they have decided they are going to seek testimony from the uh, federal ethics watchdog on rules around gifts and travel and vacations. Of course, this comes out of our prime minister's trip to Jamaica and the um, competing information that first came out the door. Matt, do you think there'll be anything that comes out of this? I mean, he's not going to talk specifically about the prime minister's case. Is there an opportunity that we might get some more rules or some more sunshine on the issue of of how conduct people conduct themselves as MPs and cabinet ministers and prime ministers? I mean, I'm going to try and keep the creeping existential despair out of my voice here. But look, I mean, everything's an opportunity, right? I mean, every day is a gift and every day, every situation each of us will ever face is uh, an opportunity to do better. And that will not be my election slogan because it's terrible. But I mean, look, I mean, at, at a basic level, that that is true, right? We can always do better and there's always opportunities to do better. But Justin Trudeau has been prime minister for, like I had hair, like when he was first elected. And like, I, I only had one kid, now I have two. And he has never cared about getting in trouble for taking big, fancy, splashy vacations. And there really isn't much of an accountability mechanism in place to do anything. And I include the voters in that because the voters have obviously decided they don't care that much because he keeps getting reelected, even you know with smaller vote shares and minority governments. Look, this conversation, Deb, I think flows very naturally out of the one we were just having. And even out of the Jordan Peterson one we had in the first section, we have accountability mechanisms. We're supposed to have standards. If we can adhere to them, great. If we can't, then I don't think we're going anywhere good. Sunil, I mean, Matt's final point is essentially we had had standards. The prime minister was seen to have broken them and he continued on. Yeah, I mean, I think he's following the rules. In this case, you can accept gifts and advantages from relatives and family friends. The issue is maybe should that be the case? If you're the prime minister or you're a cabinet minister, should you be taking gifts over a certain monetary value from friends, uh, because it gives the appearance that things are kind of untoward, even if they're not. And I think that appearance issue when it comes to ethics is really uh, critical. Jamie Ellerton, my apologies. I always run out of time on these topics. Matt Gurney, co-founder and editor of The Line and a columnist for TV Ontario, Sunil Johal, professor in public policy and society at U of T, and Jamie Ellerton, founding partner at Canaptus. Thanks so much to all three of you for joining me. Coming up after the break, is it possible that Queen's University could be no more. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is The Rush on News Talk 1010.